Welcome to TSOB with Dr. G, a podcast featuring intellectual table talk about race and sexuality. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, a sexuality educator, writer, and researcher. Join me as I talk with the most brilliant minds in human sexuality, applying a professional Black lens to discussions about sexiness, health, and healing in the new millennium. It's TSOB, the sex ed of Black folk. Let's get to the get down, shall we? All right, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of TSOB with Dr. G. I'm Dr. Tracy Gilbert. And as usual, I am super excited to be here with you all. Um, This season, like I said, I'm just having um, a lot of amazing people. Last season, I had mostly like my friends and people I knew directly. This season, I'm inviting people that are like friends in my head and like just people that I'm like super fans of. So um, this person is no exception. I'm talking about none other than Raquel Savage. So I'm going to read Raquel's bio. We are going to chop it up and hopefully we're going to have an awesome conversation. No, hopefully it's going to be awesome. (laughs) So let me go ahead and get started. Um, Raquel Savage was born into a life of bold resistance that she attributes to her grandparents. Growing up watching her grandfather, a Methodist minister, transgressed by fighting issues related to race and gay rights, Raquel grew up to have a deep appreciation for social justice and an understanding of the importance of standing behind the righteous thing. Her grandmother, a rebellious preacher's wife, was an ASEX certified sexuality educator. Shout out to all the ASEX certified educators. Um, And she was opinionated and fearless. As Raquel got older, she furthered her work in sexual liberation work via education. During her undergrad, she created organizations like The Q Group, where she created a space for queer students and later earned a board certification in human sexuality. Currently, Raquel holds a master's in counseling, marriage and family therapy. Ms. Savage is also committed to making her work accessible, substantial, and personal. She does sex and trauma coaching and Savage Sex Ed. Raquel facilitates sex and trauma coaching sessions where she is able to personalize her labor and wisdom in an intimate setting. Savage Sex Ed includes interactive workshops, which can be held privately or publicly and range from topics like fetishes, ethical non-monogamy, and orgasm. Savage Sex Ed consultations allow people to pick Raquel's brain about a topic of their choice. And in all ways, Raquel Savage is committed to educating. Raquel Savage is one of the most progressive and promising brands in media. I absolutely agree with that. And she shows no signs of slowing down. Uh, She isn't just a woman with a brand and a passion, but she has a mission. And that mission is to turn shamed folks into unapologetic, fearless savages too. And now y'all know why, of course, I had to ask her to be on this show. So without further ado, thank you so much for being here, Raquel. I'm so excited to speak with you today. How are you? I have never had somebody read uh, that bio (laughs) like that before. It's interesting because when you said, I'm just going to read it from your site, uh, I thought you meant from the fact, the frequently asked questions page and under like the first question under the fact is like uh, about like, what do I actually do? And it oh. has a bunch of stuff. And so I've never had anybody actually read like the about me. So that was pretty cool to hear. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I was just so excited about the pieces that I didn't know about you, right? About your uh, about your grandmother being an ASEC certified educator. I'm super excited about that, too. So Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. 
That's cool. Yeah, that was dope. Um, so we're going to jump right in. Like I said, I, you've already seen most of the questions. I do have a couple. The main one I start with that I start with every single person on this show is it's a three parter. Where are you from? Where are your people from? And what's got you thinking about sex and sexuality these days? So I'm going to turn it over to you and, and go ahead and go in. So I was born in California, but I grew up in Maryland, mostly in Howard County, which is 15, 20 minutes outside of Baltimore. And where are my people from? So my mom's side of the family is from like New England states. I'm mm. mixed, black and white. So my mom is white, New England, white folks, colonizers up there. And then mm -hmm. my dad's side is in Cali, but also a little bit of ancestry is in Texas. So that's where my people are from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have lived in Miami for like seven years. So I moved here after I graduated from my undergrad. And yeah. Miami is my, my favorite city ever. And then what was the third part? What's got you thinking about sex and sexuality these days? <laughs> you know, it's really this, the timing of this in interview is so interesting because while I am a sex educator and I do talk about sex and sexuality a lot, I have shifted a lot in the last year or so into talking about sex and sexuality from a perspective of mental health and trauma versus like teaching people how to like suck dick or, you know, sexual dysfunctions or like the fancy fun, not even fancy, the fun stuff, the provocative mm -hmm. stuff. So honestly, a lot of what I've been thinking about recently around sex and sexuality is related to trauma. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think that the majority of my my sex education and like my work in general exists on Patreon and anyone who is a subscriber of is a patron on my Patreon, I think has the best inside look at my life and what I'm going through. And I would mm -hmm. say that the content is is always parallel to what is of, of interest to me at the time. Yeah. So a few years ago, I think I started the Patreon in 2018. You know, the first couple of years was like talking a lot about sex work, teaching people how to eat pussy, teaching people how to do, how to ride, teach people about orgasms, you know, talking a lot about, I don't know, like I said, I guess the fun stuff of sex. Right. And that's also parallel to what I see a lot of other sex educators doing. There's lots of like, how to intimacy and how to please your partner and whatever. And then maybe like a year and a half and a year and a half ago, I personally had a relationship that prompted me to want to talk more explicitly about uh, assault, abuse, and how mental health impacts your sexuality. And then the pandemic happened. And then it was even more of people who are living with their partners, not really because they desire to, or or their proximity is not really what they what it used to be, but they have to be in this proximity because of the pandemic and mm -hmm. it's people to live together. And then there's all these questions about like, how do you navigate living with your partner and y'all are fighting and y'all aren't even having sex anymore. And, and right. it all was related to like trauma and mental health. So there was like all of these things kind of happening that shifted my focus. And so I've done a lot of writing and videos recently on, gaslighting and emotional abuse and mm -hmm. things that don't feel like they're related to our sexualities, but very much so impact the way we show up sexually. So yeah, it's really been, I think, a good evolving conversation for my patron patrons and I, because they got the kind of 
fun stuff and now we're growing into more complex and nuanced topics and there's also those sex educators who are doing the teaching you how to have an a spot orgasm you like that still exists if they desire that kind of content i honestly don't see a lot of sex educators doing the more difficult topics and i think sometimes as sex educators we get like pigeonholed into doing the fun stuff and not talking about the serious stuff so Mm -hmm. i'm glad that i it feels personal to me and i'm glad that i'm able to do that and that it's my patrons are responding in a meaningful way because it seems like information that people need even if it's not fun yeah yeah no and i appreciate you saying that because i think sex ed to the outside world can look very kind of one-sided and just kind of be focused on the fucking and just focused on kind of the act right without realizing that not only is sexuality education this really huge wide world in many cases it's not even sexy at all it's in some cases it's not that fun um and um what i really i love how to my to my eyes you seem like one of those educators who can kind of balance both and that was one of the reasons i was like i definitely have to get raquel on this show because while we love to talk about the fun stuff and we can talk about the juicy stuff it's also important to kind of uh have that well-rounded conversation that's not just titillating but also intellectual and so i'm really glad um to be able to have you here to get into all of that so we're definitely yeah. going to get all into all of that in just a second. I do want to back it up and ask you, um, just going back to where you said your people were from, and right, this kind of thing of your your mom being from uh, New England and your dad being from Texas. I'm curious about what that was like to have those differences, those cultural differences come together. And were there cultural differences and what it was like being a kid in, the, in that kind of context? Yeah, so I was raised predominantly by my mom and her family. So I was raised by white folks. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there wasn't really the cultural influence more so for me. And definitely as I look back now as someone with a clearer politic, uh, a stronger identity, um, it was, hmm, it's white folks. And it is, I'm not a fan (laughs) of white folks. And that extends to my family as well. And, you know, my family specifically are the liberal kind of white folks who are like, Mm -hmm. we support, we're so progressive. And they're all educators, actually. My mom is a band teacher. Her partner is a music teacher. My aunt is a social studies teacher. Literally everyone are teachers. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there were many things that were really, really wonderful about my family that absolutely informed who I am today. For example, teaching me about autonomy, making decisions on my own, having a strong sense of self, um, having my identity and core values in making what feels like the right, doing the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. Compassion, humility. Those were really important concepts that I have later developed into other things. But then there was the other side of it that was true to anyone who, if you know any like white liberals is at the end of the day, they're still white and their interests are still centered around whiteness. Mm -hmm. However, they're just like covered in this kind of facade. And that can be really confusing, I think as a kid, especially as like the one black kid in the family. So- Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of different things. And I think also it, it impacted how I showed up in different kinds of spaces and how I made sense of things. I was just thinking about this the other day. Like when I went to school, I was expecting that everyone had the core value of like doing the right thing and treating people with a sense of compassion and being Christ-like because that's what I taught, was, was, was taught. And mm-hmm. then I very quickly was like realizing that that's not 
it's not well, people are not talking- everybody's on the same page <laughs> correct and and more to the point was that how the lens in which i was taught that was very white it is mm. very white to be able to say like treat people nicely and mm-hmm. don't fight back when someone go tell a teacher but like when you're navigating the world as a black child as a black person in general as a woman yeah. as a person as a sex worker whatever you are engaged violently consistently so this this whole like treat people with respect and non-violence and whatever that shit is really not valid if you are navigated in a way that's violent so right and it was not something i could really talk to my family about because their value was centered in this peace and non-violence which again i think is wonderful and it's not nuanced enough because it was from a lens of white folks so i had to learn on my own and very quickly kind of how, how to navigate different spaces and i think just like any mixed kid we're really fucking confused we have a lot of identity <laughs> crisis and issues we take up a lot of space when we need to just be quiet and sit down you know there's like there's a lot of i think stuff around race and identity and specifically when you're you know it's it's like a running joke to tell mixed kids to shut up and i agree because (laughs) because in many ways um we can play to our proximity to whiteness in a way that's violent Mm -hmm. and i and not but and i think that people don't realize or rather we don't make enough space to talk about like what it's like to be raised by a fucking white person and that what the fuck like what kind of crisis and confusion that creates so yeah 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 okay yeah and um i i love having conversations with other black folks who have different kind of lenses like that particularly folks who might be biracial or they come from other places outside of the u.s because i have a very i have the standard negro black american experience right um so to hear these other stories it's like wow i never thought about that and wow i you know so i so i love that's why I asked that question to really and to not only help me, but to help our r- listeners understand that the real meaning when we say we're not a monolith, like that literally means, you know, how we come to our understanding of our blackness is all different. How we even understand other people as a function of how we've been racialized is all different. So I just really, really love hearing that. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. I didn't get really a chance to or not even that I didn't get a chance, I didn't begin to engage anti-blackness and and really what it means to be a black person, a black woman, and kind of exploring systems of oppression and just power dynamics and all of that until I was 24. Um, Mm -hmm. When I first moved to Miami, the first thing I did when I got to Miami was I got my ass done. Um, and so okay. I was I was uh, laid out for the first like two or three months just at home having to hang out and chill. Right. And the timing of that was so critical because it allowed me, or rather I had the time to sit and watch when Mike Brown was murdered and mm. uh, the following kind of protests and things that happened around that that was all I was doing when I was like recovering from surgery. And that was the first time I think that I really, that I got radicalized. So Mm. let me, let me rephrase that. That's not the first time that I thought about my blackness at all. However, it's the first time that I got radicalized in a way where I was like, fuck the bullshit. We need to break it down for real. (laughs) And from there I've only developed a stronger sense of that and a a deeper understanding of systems of oppression and and what it means to be black and what it means to be a light-skinned black person and what it means to be a light-skinned black person and a a number of kind of things. But 
yeah, that that moment I always name as a moment that radicalized me for sure. Got you, got you. Yeah, and I feel I, I feel like every black person has one. It's so it's sad. I, I say funny because you have to laugh to keep from crying, but it it it's kind of interesting to me how everybody has their one, and mine is like. I'm a do Diallo, right? And and like now, I think just this past week, we're recording this in April. So we just came off the heels of like three separate stories yeah. that came out this past week. One yeah. of the killing of a 13-year-old boy. And people are like, but he was 13. And I'm thinking, but Tamir Rice was 12, right? Like, again, we could, we've got stories. We've got a whole archive at this point. And so, you know, it's just, it, it, it almost like can freeze you up if you get so bogged down just because there's so many, there's just so yeah. many stories. Um, so I'm curious then, as, particularly if for it being a late radicalization, to use your word for you, um, how often do you factor in or think about sexuality and sex within your understanding of your race consciousness and how that gets factored in? Does that factor in for you at all? So the same time that I was becoming radicalized watching the protests was the same time that I started doing sex work. Mm. And I don't know that I've ever thought of that as having any kind of a connection. And I don't know that it really does. It more so was just a, a matter of, of timing and needing money and needing a job. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But that is just an inter interesting coincidence. Otherwise, I don't know that as I was experiencing things like prior to the radicalization like before 24 mm -hmm. that i was ex i was understanding things or experiencing things from a, from a lens or perspective of people navigating me and my sexuality as racialized i i, I knew that i was black i knew that i have experienced racism i knew that i was treated differently and things were different for me but i don't think as it was happening i really made that connection in a meaningful way as an adult now i absolutely mm -hmm. can look back and say uh, the reason that the teachers were behaving in A, B, and C way towards me, the reason that my friend's parents were behaving this way towards me was not because I was just a little white girl doing is because I was a black girl doing mm -hmm. A, B, and C, right? So mm -hmm. now with the lens that I have, I can absolutely look back and like take a microscope and be like, yeah, that shit was specifically around my blackness and womanhood and how that is sexualized, even though I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and then I think post-radicalization and identifying as a sex work, that's a whole, that's like a whole other umbrella realm, whatever, of being treated differently because I am Black. I mean, I, I think that I've done pretty well for myself as an educator, therapist, sex worker, whatever, and mm -hmm. I can say very clearly that with the knowledge that I have, with the, the, ability to make things relatable, whatever that I have, if I were white doing the same work, I mm -hmm. would literally be famous. Mm -hmm. Like when mm -hmm. I see other things happening in entertainment that are around sex and sexuality and sex workers, it is almost always a white woman. Mm -hmm. And I just continuously think to myself, if I were white, yeah, the level to my reach and, and would be much different. So I'm, I'm, I definitely understand it now. And then even just existing like, as a black queer sex worker woman online, the way that people treat me and other black sex workers is horrific compared yeah. to people. I mean, 
So yes, there is there is a very clear and obvious lens to me now that I'm understanding what that e- would even look like for me to recognize it. Yeah, yeah, wow. And it, I, I'm like, I want to ask you all the questions because <laughs> you're like sharing so many things that I'm like, I want to learn more. I would love to learn more about that. And hopefully we'll have a chance to get into those parts of the conversation too. But even just kind of coming back, right? And thinking about your journey, especially since you had a grandmother who was ASEC certified did you ever early on have an interest in doing sex in, in sex ed or like how did you even get to where you are now in terms of like the counseling and the therapy and the education and you you mentioned how you got into sex work but I'm I I love how you've been able to integrate them all together and so please tell us your sex ed journey how you even got into this work professionally so I honestly have always been a, a very sexual sensual person and mm-hmm. I think if we, if I were to do like a deep dive into why that is, there would be a number of reasons, whether it be that that was just like inherently my personality, whether it be because of trauma, whether it be because of being like bipolar and ADHD and that being a sense, uh, like a sensory stimulation thing, whether it be, uh, there's so many different reasons. And to, to, to just make it concise, I have, I've just was always exploring shit and then I always had friends too who were like let's let's explore some shit like I have just so many stories and I talk about them a lot on my podcast the savage life where when I was a kid we just did so much like sexual exploration shit and Mm -hmm. that's really normal FYI for kids to be doing same age sex exploration kind of stuff not literally having sex but sexually exploring things absolutely Um, and that was definitely my thing for sure I think the combination of of that existing of my family not being super conservative of them being pretty again quote progressive and and really drilling into me messages around autonomy right making sense of this is my body how do I get to decide things about my body mm-hmm. I just was and I was just rebellious so I don't know I was just doing <laughs> shit from early on until whatever right and so yeah part as a result of that meant that people would come to me to talk about and do sexual shit so yeah I, by proxy of that, just became like the go-to kind of person. And I don't think that I ever thought about it in a in a critical way. It was just like, that's who I was and that's what it was. And this is what the fuck it is. And mm-hmm. what do you need to know, sis? Let me help you out. Right, right, right. And then I went to college and I got my undergrad in business communications. I wanted to be like Lala Anthony and be like a VJ mm-hmm. or something. I just wanted to be famous. I didn't really care. I just was like, let me do something. Mm-hmm. And... I, I I recognized more specifically in college kind of the critical and political side of things, um, which is when I started the the queer club at my college, which was very rebellious because I went to a historically all girls Catholic school that never had a queer club before. Mm. I was like pushing boundaries there, and I also think at that time I really realized how how being the person whose reputation was centered around sex influenced my relationships with people and how I made sense of my sexuality. So for instance, I've always been interested in relationships with people who are not men, but Mm -hmm. it became very sexualized where it was like, I'm the girl who like everyone would go to to have their girl experience. And Mm -hmm. while that's like fun, that's also really dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I kind of made that 
connection to and realized like, wow, most of the relationships I've had with women, um, whether they were romantic, sexual, whatever, like have been very shallow and I haven't even really experienced the, the level to which I want to, right? So then just right. started, started thinking about more things, but didn't put anything together. I just was like in college doing my thing. And then I graduated, couldn't find a fucking job to save my life. Just couldn't find like journalism jobs. Then I looked for like entry level. You have a grad, uh, undergrad degree jobs. Wouldn't get hired there. Then I was like, all right, fucking let me look at retail. Wouldn't get hired there. I was not finding any work. Mm-hmm. And that's what prompted me to get into sex work and move to Miami. And I was like, I'm going to be Amber Rose or Black China. Like I'm just going to be whatever. There and is, right. Simultaneously, though, I had a conversation with someone who worked at like a news station at a news station in in Baltimore. And they were like, what is your thing? Like, you can't just be famous. You got to have a thing. And I was like, I don't know what my thing is. Have you not seen folks in Hollywood? It's lots of folks that's famous with no thing. (laughs) Which is true. But talking again about being racialized, I'm sure that that played into it. Because white folks definitely can get away with doing nothing and being famous. Fair, Um, fair. So they were like, you need to find a thing. And so I, I, it took me about a year to really think about that. And I, like I said, I had started doing sex work. I was in Miami. I was getting a lot of, I was getting a lot of attention in the sex work industry. And I was like, oh, right. People be talking to me about sex. So maybe I can just like make that into a career somehow. So Mm -hmm. I started doing research and I was like, oh, I'm going to become a sex therapist. And then I was like, that's cool. And then it was like, bitch, you got to get your master's to become a sex therapist. I was like, oh, fuck, well, I guess I got to go back to school then. And um, went back to school, got my master's, got a separate certification in human sexuality. And honestly, when I look back at everything and I think about where I am now, mm-hmm. there were there was zero really intention in how I was doing things. I have to thank my spirit guide who just mm-hmm. must have known and does know this is the things. So do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Just like, I, I, I really cannot, I can, there was no like, here's the plan. I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to execute it. It's going to be boom. And now I'm here. Wow. I did a great job. It was literally like, all right, well, let me, I'm going to do, okay, well, we will see about this. And it just yeah. worked out honestly. And um, yeah, and so now here I am as a, a therapist and doing sex coaching and doing trauma coaching and having a nonprofit where I'm allowed to kind of curate that space and doing all different kinds of things centering around my identity as a sex educator and sex worker and all of the peripheral things that, that come with that, including mental health stuff. Yeah, yeah. What, I, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is is divine guidance. Like, I really yeah. honestly see, like, Oh, you you got to where you were supposed to be because it was your calling. And so the universe yes. moved itself to put you moved you to put you in position to do what you're doing. And I'm I I love that. I, I love folks, I feel like that's what the all of us need. We all need to just be moved into where we're supposed to be. So I'm I'm super excited about that. Um and I love what I appreciate just on a personal level is just how transparent you are about your sex work history. Um, particularly because of the recent conversations, I feel like now I I apologize to whoever else in the world who feels like they have some ownership over this term, but you were the person the first person I ever hear her talk about horophobia 
right? And talked about this, the ways that sex workers are treated or mistreated in the work that they do. And for me as a sexuality educator, I really feel like I've started to see threads of that, not only just in the regular world, but also in terms of sex education itself, in terms of how sex ed happens, what topics you can talk about or not talk about and all those things. So I would, if you, I would love for you, if you don't mind, kind of help folks understand even what is horophobia and just your general thoughts about that concept and how it shows up in the world. I love that um, I was the one who introduced you to that word. And I also want to name very clearly that I did not create and coin that term, that that is okay. a term that I learned. So horophobia is the hatred, contempt, disgust of sex workers. And more specifically, you know, sex work is an umbrella term, right? And it encompasses everyone who's in the sex industry, strippers, sugar babies, uh, cam girls, porn people, full service sex workers, right? But when we mm -hmm. talk really about horophobia and, and sex work, we're really centering the experiences and then the discrimination and hatred of street-based sex workers, right? Who mm -hmm. typically, when we think of them, are black and brown, queer and trans, right? So yes. When you think of horophobia, although it does expand to everyone in the sex industry and peripherally, peripherally to non-sex workers as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because civilian women get have have experiences of horophobia by proxy of it being um, a way to shame and control women in general. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to make sure that folks understand that it's not centered around like the experiences of strippers or the experiences of people in the porn industry. It really starts and is centered in this true disgust uh, dehumanization of mm -hmm. sex workers. And then again, it affects everyone. Yes. But mm -hmm. I want to make sure that that's clear because sometimes this like sex work is an umbrella term thing. It, it gets, it gets watered down into something that doesn't make space for those who are the most criminalized and marginalized and vulnerable. So I mm. want to make that clear. And then the other thing was, what? what is my my, 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 my thoughts on horophobia or personal experiences or? Yeah, or well, if you want to share that, I guess, and now that you're saying it, I, I recognize that I'm still new in terms of what I chew on or how I've been chewing on the concept. But for me, it even felt kind of bigger to really even look at like the the hatred that's given to even precocious women, right? This I, like women who have a lot of sexual knowledge, who have a lot of sexual confidence. I, I like I think of it as like uh, the fear of fast tail girls, right? And this idea of like you can't be someone who loves sex, who is very clear about her sexual worth and is transactional with that and negotiates for a good price and all of those things. Um, to me, that's kind of the whole concept too. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about even just the pervasiveness of, of horophobia, um, how horophobia intersects with sex ed, any other thoughts you, you want to share? And if you want to share personal experiences, feel free, but also you don't have to. So what had me, what prompted me to start talking about horophobia specifically really was me watching the music industry, specifically the rap girls use sex work aesthetics to mm -hmm. create platforms and popularity mm -hmm. while presumably not being sex workers and not wanting to or totally ignoring the actual lived experiences of sex workers and the material impact and, and the criminalization of like just what that is like. Right. And so that's what prompted me to start talking about horophobia and too much 
disdain. I got a lot of heat and still do for the things I have said, because ultimately I am critiquing people's faves and we know that stand culture is absolutely toxic. People have zero or little ability to objectively critique some of their fave artists because they see themselves in their artists in these artists. Right. But absolutely. So that's what break that down. Let's yeah. break. Let's break it down. Like, can you give us some examples of what you're thinking about? And I'm just gonna say, look, if Raquel says something you don't like, you can come to my DMs because I ain't scared of none of y'all. So we'll just <laughs> put that out there before you get into it. And I'm not scared of nobody either. I don't give a fuck sure. about offending people um, <laughs> when I'm doing when I'm critiquing people in that way. And I also uh, have existed online and in life long enough to know that people can say whatever the fuck they need to say and want to say, and it is not a direct influence on my personhood or, or value. Actual so facts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what the first thing that I did was I I found out I don't even rem- remember now how I kind of became aware of Meg the Stallion, but someone I think suggested that we get her on the podcast, and mm-hmm. I hadn't really heard her music at that point, but I was like, I would love to, like I will let's go, and then I heard her music and I was like, oh, she's talking about slut shit, like she's with the shits, like she's talking right. about selling pussy and i'm like i fuck with that like here's a bitch who's talking about the shit that we be living right and and then i i i heard i saw a clip on twitter of an interview that she did and where she said something like she recycles her body so that she doesn't run up her body count and i was like Mm, are you selling pussy or not because (laughs) give a fuck about a body count moreover how confusing is it that in your lyrics you're talking about fucking and sucking and getting your shit ate and then you and then in real life you're talking about preserving your virtue essentially Mm. which ties into patriarchy and misogyny so which is very confusing to me and so i tweeted essentially and and it was my desire was to create conversation not to make a definitive statement um was essentially just wondering like how does that how do we how do we reconcile those things and mm-hmm. how do we make sense of what it means to pander to men in a way that uses sex work aesthetics but erases the experiences of sex workers and ultimately still buys into patriarchy and you know just mm-hmm. like what what are y'all thinking and it just mm-hmm. exploded into this like i hate meg and then the funny thing was her stands mm-hmm. in response to me asking these questions directed pretty violent whorephobia towards me. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are singing along to lyrics that are talking about selling pussy, but then when a bitch right. who actually sells pussy makes a critique, it's you are a dirty fucking slut. You're selling pussy for five dollars. I seen your ashy ass. And I'm like, so what is the truth? Like, what's what? the truth? Is it Uchi Wally or One Mike? Which, like, is we like what? And so that was really yeah. what. And then that later led me to write a piece in in Bitch Media, expanding more on sex work aesthetics being appropriated in you know in general and specifically amongst the rap girls and like you know Saweetie I think is how you pronounce her name she has the um that's my type nigga that's my type and she's talking about rich dudes but then later in the song she says something like you bitches fucking for the rent you would thought and it's like it just doesn't yeah 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 and one of the things that I want to say because I feel like this is important to say is uh, people don't owe 
anyone disclosure of their sex work identity. And we have to make space for what it means to talk about these things and romanticize and popularize mm. and whatever these things in a way that separates them from the people who are actively doing them and who are the most vulnerable, right? So, yeah. and then, you know, another thing that kind of snowballed this was, and what really kicked off the the continuing the the romanticization and kind of normalcy of sex work in this separated way from actual sex workers is mm -hmm. then Meg went on to do the remix with Beyonce and Beyonce says I might start on OnlyFans and that yeah. essentially made OnlyFans a household name and then we saw the impacts of that which again had material impacts on actual sex workers because at some point, I think Bella Hadid made yeah, an only yeah, yeah. picture saying that it was a nude, but it wasn't charged like $200 for it. And when everybody was rioting about that, OnlyFans decided to make there be a cap on the amount in which sex workers are allowed to charge in our DMs, right? Yeah. So like, there's it. I really, my focus has been a lot around how sex work aesthetics specifically uh, full service sex work aesthetics have been appropriated um, and what it means for the culture mm -hmm. and what it means for sex workers. And I have talked about it less recently because I don't feel like it at this point, but periodically I get like tweets where it's like, you know, I saw something, something, something happen and Raquel tried to talk about this a couple years ago and y'all was mm -hmm. trying to act like it wasn't, but now y'all are seeing it, you know? So it's like, that's right. battling in some way, but it's also like, I'm, I'm over it. I'm not over it, but I, I can't continue to center my like energy and labor around that when it's like, y'all already know the point is that y'all hate sex workers. Sure. So. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, as a lay person, I guess what's frustrating to me is I still think there's this, there's this pseudo sense of freedom that's getting elevated of like, Oh yeah, we're all being sexually free, but it's still amplifying the traditional Madonna whore complex. And this idea of like, all of us are either one or the other. And if you are playing, like you, you saying, appropriating the whore, then you have to at some point put the caveat in that's like, well, I'm not like the real ones. I'm this innocent one or this whatever, when the reality is not only is uh, sex work valid, it's work. It's something that should be valid and should be properly protected. And, and that's a whole other conversation. But in many ways, all of us are operating transactionally when it comes to sex, if we're doing it right, in my opinion. Um, but we're all, you know, making clear uh, negotiations of the things that we want. And there's nothing to be shaming or to be to feel ashamed about with that. And so um, thank you for, for breaking that down for folks. Um, so when you think about your work and what you do, what would you say your sex ed superpower is? I love that question. And actually, can I circle back to, back to the whorephobia and sex education? Because I, I don't feel like I said that. Oh, well, that. let's get into it. Because I was going to come back to it. But oh, we can okay. do it now if you want to. <laughs> okay, well, I was just going to say, as you were talking, I was thinking about the ways that it shows up in sex ed, like you had previously mm -hmm. So do you want me to wait or? Well, you know what? We, let, let, yeah, let's come back. Because I do, um, yeah, I, I do want to really dig into that. Specifically yes. in the context of young people as well. But let's get into your superpower. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what is my sex ed superpower? <laughs> that is such a that is that is a cute question. Um, honestly, I feel in many ways like my sex ed superpower would be similar to what my superpower would be in general, which is that I bring to the conversation and the table 
a, a, a variety of lenses that make what I'm saying feel more relatable and authentic because I actually do it. Yeah. So I'm when I talk about trauma and therapy and mental health and processing trauma and holding space, that's because I'm actually doing that as a therapist. When I talk about um, learning how to have more transactional and in, in affirming and empowering relationships with people, specifically cis men, whether you're a sex worker or not, right? Negotiating, getting your boundaries met, your needs met. That's because I'm actually doing it. When I'm talking about sucking dick for money on a yacht with NBA players, that's because I'm actually doing it. So yeah. there is, I think, an auth an authenticity to me that is largely what has made me successful because people know that I'm not bullshitting. People know that when I like log off of Twitter that I'm not actually a, a school teacher or, and like no shade yeah. to school teachers, right? I'm just saying that it, my, my, all of my identities are actually real. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that would be like my superpower is like, you're going to get the real shit because I'm actually doing it. Yeah. And I love what I love about you. I'm going to, I'm just going to fangirl real quick. What I love, what I, what I will say, not even just love, what I'm impressed about is like, I, I feel like you are such a kick in the throat to people who want to just kind of pigeonhole people into one category, right? Like, oh, you're a counselor. That means you have to, especially as a black femme counselor, you have to look like this. You have to have that nice uh, suit picture and, you know, give honor to God or just have this particular image, right? If you're a sex worker, you can't be smart. You can't have any type of intelligence. You just gotta be, and you gotta be tragic. You gotta be stressed out, right? If you're an educator, you have to either be fun and not actually really know things, but just, you know, have fun and play with toys and you know and, and 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 it's like you really to me I'm like I need you to know that I'm rooting I root for you all the time like I just get like I'm always like get them just fuck them up they need to know that we have multitudes so I just I really appreciate because and I and I agree I think that is a superpower that you have of just really being able to hold all those things and just when people understand you it's like ah, ah you thought here's another layer and we're gonna go with it and, and I'm still the same person I was when I said that the other thing the other day as well so um, thank you I appreciate that. yeah definitely Let's get back to the education piece. And and I would love to, because I'm always thinking about, like, you know, I, I know we are the world, but I'm also Black. And I also grew up in Black community. And I'm very concerned about the specific conversations we have intraculturally. So I would love for you to talk about what you feel like Black people in particular. What are some of the places where we can stand to do better when it comes to maybe even thinking about horophobia or thinking about sexuality in general or just places where we just got it fucked up and we just need to be doing better? Like, what would you, what, how would you answer that question? Black people in general or black sex educators? Um, either or, either or. I would say in general, and this applies to sex educators and anyone else, is mm -hmm. moving away from or rather diversifying not only the people that you're in community with, but the way that you create and center your content around. So, so much of what I typically see is like everything. And this is a reflection of culture in general. So it's really not unique to black folks, but because we are black folks, I want black folks to do it better. Yeah. It, everything is centered around cishet women and cishet men. Yeah. And more specifically, uh, the conventionally correct version of that. So mm -hmm. 
the black love and mm-hmm. the attractive. That's exactly where my mind went. <laughs> right. And all of that. And I, I ask people and demand of people that they queer that for starters, like not everything revolves around cis men and cis women. So let's mm-hmm. just get that out the fucking way. Right. Um, and that will not be reflected in the conversations that you're having or the content you're creating if you're not in community with queer folks. So like, you need to motherfucking expand your community and simultaneously and perhaps before is unpacking your homophobia and queerphobia and transphobia. So because a lot of people are not doing that work and that shows up in regular day-to-day conversation and in any kind of professional career spaces. And then in addition to that, doing the same thing with um, sex and sexuality and sex workers, right? So unpacking and starting to interrogate beliefs and things, practices that you have that you uphold that um, are aligned with rape culture and things that are mm-hmm. misogynistic or internalized misogyny, right? If you are a woman, um, and things that uphold and perpetuate whorephobia, right? Like really starting to interrogate all of the isms and phobias in a way that you can take accountability for what you have done, the harm that you have done, the harm that you will continue to do by proxy of your identity and how you can actively and always be an accomplice to these other communities because they are where our community. Like yeah. you you cannot be pro-black if you are not pro-black trans women and pro, pro-black sex workers and pro-black disabled people and pro-black queer women who are not femme identified and don't give a fuck about men like you have to it's either all of us or it's none of us so right yeah that would be my ask continuously of black folks for sure yeah 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 yeah. let me just for the folks who may not be clear can you give a brief understanding of what is rape culture that you mentioned that yeah so rape culture is the the trivialization the normalization of sexual assault and the various ways that that shows up in our community and media and culture and whatever else right so that can look like so many different fucking things that can look like victim blaming right while she was wearing a skirt or that can look like uh making it a, a joke or not that serious that someone got another person drunk in order to essentially decrease and shift their decision making in order to have sex with them. Um, mm-hmm. It can look like literally any rom com that you watch. Put on any fucking rom com, and you see that the center of the premise of the fucking movie is about like wearing down the woman so that she eventually falls in love with the man, right? Like there's so many ways, and we'd be here forever. But those are the things I can think of off the top of my head. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, so yes, let's. Let's do the sex ed thing. Let's let's talk about horophobia and sex ed and what's what's on your mind. Do you still remember it? Yeah, so I was really just going to say that as a sex educator who is also a sex worker, I so frequently see other sex educators, specifically black sex educators, who are just missing the fucking mark when it comes to mm. encouraging people to really unpack what is their misogyny and Ultimately, horophobia because I have I see sex educators talking about like unpacking shame around your sexuality and you know feeling good about your sexuality and whatever, but it's missing the entire angle of horophobia, which is the foundation of that conversation. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, you learned growing up that you had to behave in this way and unpack that and feel good and feel empowered. But it's like, how are you even having that conversation with people without explicitly saying you learned that because you learned that whores, that street-based workers who are selling yes. pussy 
for $25 are the scum of the earth. Like that's how you learn that. And so if we can figure out how to humanize folks and make space for folks and talk about, you know, then you can really think about how you can unpack that internalized bullshit. Otherwise it's, it's fake. Yeah. And what I love about like, I, to me, I, I make the link because again, I, a lot of my focus is on K to, at the K twelve level, and I make the link thinking about the girls who may not have gotten to the formal level of being sex workers, but you know they they it, they have sex. They maybe have a quote unquote high body count, and they're treated as if oh they're the worst thing ever. They're traumatized, and oh something happened to them when they were younger. They you know they have these these different things, and I think particularly as black femmes, I think there is this conversation that we don't have about how black girls often have to walk this line of anything that they do, they can be judged either or. And so that they pass on that judgment to the girls who are actually on the other side of the line to kind of like pit themselves against it when it's like, we're all in the same boat and we're all just at different places in terms of what we like or what we don't like, or even how comfortable we are in saying what we like and what we don't like. And I think that to me as an educator, when I then go in classrooms and we start talking about, well, what is healthy sex and what's not healthy sex? I feel this frustration and I hope other educators can relate to this, this frustration of wanting to say, let's talk about desire. Let's talk about pleasure. Let's talk about the things that you would like to have happen and talk about, what it's like to be in an environment where even just saying, I would love to have sex with more than one boy, or I would love to have this happen, or I would love to have sex with girls, or I would love to do this, and how that can't happen because that's not healthy, or that it gets coded as like, oh, problematic, or, you know, all of these different things. And so for me, to me, there's like this through line from how young folks are taught to think about sex to horophobia and all the things you're talking about in adulthood. Absolutely. And, and, and more to the point is that some of these girls are traumatized. Some of these people have had experiences in childhood and we very rarely make space for that, which is also an extension of porphobia because we do this thing where we're like, we look at sex work as either it's so empowering, so amazing. Oh my God, it's wonderful. They're making so much money. Shout out to them. Or they're, they're doing it because they're traumatized and they're this, it's this dichotomy and it, that never ends up humanizing anyone. Right. And it also doesn't leave space for these multiple experiences so the reality is is that some of us are having sex and exploring sex and sexuality because we're traumatized and that's valid too let's hold space for those that's their experience and it doesn't have to be this kind of like you know yes i just wanted to name that because that's a great point when we yeah when we start talking about that side of it because it's the same thing it's like well they're, they're traumatized and they're doing this then we don't actually get to talk about what that means, how that happens, how can we assist these people in healing the trauma and finding grounds that feel consensual and safe, right? Like we don't even get to get into that. So yeah, it's when I think of kids and and teenagers, whether it's like just talking about sex, not sex work specifically, Mm -hmm. people really freak out when they think about kids and teens being um, sexual or having sex, right? And people have no tolerance for emotional tolerance for right like they cannot stay present in what they're experiencing when they think about kids and teens exploring sex and it just leaves space for so much fucking vulnerability because then kids and teens never get to learn anything good and then they go on to have really traumatic if not already sexual experiences and it's it's fucking horrific and then the cycle just continues so i really you know 
I, I really feel like the, the conversation around kids and teens has to include or be centered around adults and how adults are uh, engaging kids and teens yeah. in order to even make that any kind of progress in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Absolutely. Oof, yes. <laughs> so let's say then, Raquel, you've got someone listening who maybe is a parent and they're like, you know what? This is a little scary, but I think old girl is making sense. And they're like, but I don't know what to do next. What would you say for the person who's listening? Who's like, I, I need, I know, I hear you. I want to do better. What, where do I begin? What do I do? What will you share? I really think with parents, the, the first thing that parents need to do is, and this is really hard and this is why it typically doesn't happen, is sit down and start reflecting on, interrogating, introspecting, whatever, thinking critically about what comes up for you when you start thinking about any of these things. And mo more than likely, it has nothing to do with that, the, your kid or the kids that are around you. It has to do with shit that you have experienced and internalized which sometimes actually can be about the kid because sometimes it's about like misogyny and patriarchy, which is about ownership, right? But mm -hmm. really thinking about what comes up for you, what comes up for you, meaning what is the messages and the meanings attached to whatever you're thinking about? So you see your daughter in, I don't know, a fucking skirt or something and you're like, the message and meaning that pops in your head is that's, she's a slut. Okay, what are the things that you learned about sluts? I learned that mm -hmm. sluts are bad people. And, and my dad told me that I would be a slut if I wore that. Okay, and how did that make you feel to identify with perhaps being aligned with being a slut? It made me feel like I was a bad person. Where did you feel that in your body? In my chest, in my back. And that feels really uncomfortable, right? Yeah, that feels really fucking bad. And thinking about kind of all of this bigger sphere of, it's trauma, really. Mm -hmm. All of these things that we're, we're carrying. And thinking about the internal voice, right? Like who's who's saying and who's repeating these messages? Is it your parents? Is it is it a is it a church person? Is it you now? You your own voice? You know what are the things? There's like so many things, right? But I think really is, is encouraging parents to sit down and think about what comes up for them around with without being impulsive, right? Because it's like normally something happens and we just immediately react without taking the time to say, "Wow, this is this is making me think of this," and this is feeling yeah. really comfortable in my body and whatever else so starting there for sure um the next thing i think would be is learning about isms and phobias systems of oppression because part of that is learning about how we dehumanize and treat children and kids because we essentially remove any autonomy from them and believe that we get to make decisions for them and they have no space to do whatever it is that they want to do it's our responsibility so, to make decisions for them right like, not to teach them how to do it yeah right so learning about isms and phobias which is very i find doing that kind of psychoeducation with people is very helpful because it, it brings this factual lens kind of to the table where they're able to like make this connection in their head like oh that that's why a b and c and it's like oh yeah so now let's look at how that's been applied in your life let's see how mm -hmm. now how you perpetuate that and, and a, like a, an AB of the systems of oppression is figuring out what uh, privilege identities you occupy. So meaning how are you responsible for perpetuating these isms and phobias, right? And what are the marginalized identities you occupy? How are, how are you experiencing some of these things? How are you internalizing some of these things and then um, recreating them in your life? Mm -hmm. So starting with those two things, then I think next would be, I think parents... We, we have created societally this kind of expectation and, and role of parents 
as a I'm not I don't haven't really fleshed out like the language around this yet. So let me know if you follow me. It's like it becomes a role and less of an experience of personhood for your kid. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship like ends up revolving around like ask making asks of them, setting rules and boundaries for them and not relating to them as a person. Yeah. Um, and so kids end up not really having a relationship with you or knowing you and it's not reciprocal in that way. So it ends up being superficial and there is no safe space in that because yeah. there's no, there's nothing to it. There's nothing there's there. There's no experience. What, what I'm, what I'm hearing is like the difference between the role of being a parent and the experience of parenthood and the experience of parenting and how there's this simultaneous transformation that is supposed to happen in that you are here to help this person, this young person grow and they are here to help evolve you as an individual who has the responsibility of taking care of someone. Correct. Like the experience of you being two human people getting to know each other and not yeah. necessarily you are positioned as needing to do all of these things besides just be present with your human yeah. child. You know, like yeah. there's something there that I think is really important because that levels the playing field in a way that really allows the both of you to have really honest, vulnerable, open communication. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for parents that can be difficult too, because again, they haven't done those first few steps. We're not able to be vulnerable with our kids because we're not able to be vulnerable in general and yeah. you know, whatever the case may be. And I think what goes comes after that is the ability to create these spaces that feel safer to be able to facilitate conversations with our kids that are difficult. And also being able to take the position of, I don't know, like my kid asked me something and instead of being like, don't ask me that again, like just go play your game. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, but you know what? Let's find out together. Let's figure yeah. it out together. I, I actually don't know. Or Absolutely. if something happens that makes you uncomfortable and your kid recognizes that saying like, I'm so uncomfortable right now. Right. Um, I've never and done it's this. okay for mommy to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Correct. And kind of doing that thing. And then I think another thing, right, would be then you get to take the position, um, or, or, or rather have the opportunity to be accountable to the ways that you've harmed your kids. Yes. Because the unresolved harm and trauma in our kids means that our kids are not going to fucking trust us. They're not going to come to us for anything. They're not going to believe you when you say things. There's not going to be this ability to create anything meaningful That's with them. It. So when you, because this, none of this means that you're not going to snap on your kids. You're not going to do something wrong, whatever you are. And it's a matter of being able to say, I'm so sorry. I fucked up. I, I know that this hurts you. Please tell me more about how this experience was for you. I will not do this again. How can I make amends? How can I ensure that it won't happen? And what is the thing that you need to repair this? Reparations, right? How can I repair this relationship with you? And not only is that important for their relationship with them and their ability to feel safe for you, it's also setting a model for them how to be accountable to other people in their lives. So Absolutely. there's like literally so many things. I feel like it's gone forever. Yeah, no, no. I think those are amazing. And one other thing that's coming up for me, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm hearing you right. I, going back to what you said about kind of doing that own work about you know, your own experiences and your own, um, kind of your own lens in terms of how you, how, what were you taught to think about, uh, sex work? How, what were you taught to think about all these things? Um, I often, when I do parent workshops is talk about 
the projection that happens where often we're projecting things on to our kid or onto kids period. That is literally just a projection of what we feared when we were growing up or what we experienced. Right. So maybe we were that person who was having sex at 11, 12, 13, 14 got, and, and, and we're projecting that anxiety onto our young person's experience, or we're that person who, you know, maybe physically developed faster and was adultified. And so now we've got that paranoia and we're trying to hyper protect our kid and assuming that what they're what was happening, uh, how they're processing things is their experience when really it's just unresolved shit that we don't even recognize that we still feel about being a stallion, if you will, or being all of these things. Um, and so that's also something that's coming up for me about that, the need to reflect on that. Cause I feel like a lot of us don't. Right. And is that not true of any relationship, whether it's parent or otherwise, we, anything that is unresolved, we end up recreating, projecting, whatever self-sabotaging in all of the relationships that we have, which yeah. is why I am an advocate for trying to do as much healing work as possible, given that you have the bandwidth to do it, given that you have the funds and resources to do it. It is very meaningful work. And I also recognize, right, that all of the things that we just said, they largely are not possible if you are experiencing uh, poverty, if you're experiencing homelessness, like your marginalized identities really do inform your ability to have any kind of sure yeah. peace and contentment because you're struggling to meet your basic needs. So I also just want to name that. I assume most of the folks listening are getting their basic needs met. So some of this stuff will be applicable. Yeah. But to also think about the fact that, especially right, when you work with kids, right? Or if you're working with kids who are not your own, thinking about why they show up the way that they show up based on what's happening with them in their life, right? So Absolutely. maybe you and your kids got a more solid relationship because y'all have enough money and y'all have solid housing and y'all not experiencing consistent and ongoing state violence or whatever, like all of that impacts all of this shit. So I just want to name yeah. that too. Like, oh yeah, sure. And I think, I think what I hear and what you're saying too, is just holding space and grace. So like being intentional and be and leaning towards that intention while giving grace as it's needed, right? To recognize that if you are in an acute situation or, or acute crisis of some kind, that it may not be that you get it right today. And just like you want to model for your young person how to be accountable, you also want to model for your young person how to uh, to hold grace for themselves and to hold grace for you and, and so on. So I definitely hear that too. We're about to get to my rapid fire questions. Before I do that, I want to ask you, um, just because this last year and this year still feels like we're in this space of just a lot of just momentous change and just a lot of things just transforming in our society. Um, and so I'm curious if you've thought about for yourself in light of all this change and just kind of what's happening socially um, about your unique role, particularly given your journey and how it was so, it seems so divinely orchestrated. Um, have you thought about what you see your unique role or um, legacy, if you will, in this work that we're doing for the world? Yeah. So legacy feels different than role. So I'll start with like future role. Um, so I stopped doing full service sex work in 2019. And I still do like online sex work and probably will continue to as long as there's a bag coming from that. Um, but fair. <laughs> I, I, I really desire to 
and am moving more into mental health and, and academic kind of spaces um, and moving away from actively being a sex worker. So not only is that coming to fruition through Zep Wellness Center, my nonprofit, where I'm able to move kind of into doing more mental health centered stuff. Um, I'm also, I have been doing more lectures with graduate and PhD students and I'm mm -hmm. putting out into the universe that I would like to have uh, at least a part-time position doing some kind of academic work at a school. Um, yeah. So I, I think I'm really moving towards wanting to do more of that kind of stuff. And I'm uh, trying to write a book and I'd love to have like more, a more concrete and quality, like entertainment kind of stuff, like a TV show or something. Um, so moving kind of into that sphere and away from doing active sex work, even though I will always identify as a sex worker and probably be doing sex work in some way, but that just yeah. not being the center of my identity anymore. And in terms of legacy, <laughs> I know that's a big one. I, I actually tell people role, significance, and or legacy. So any okay, of those. Right. Role is good then. We got that covered. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, without question, you clearly have a significance. And I think you'll be just part of the legacy of sex educators who just do it all and just, you know, bust through the door and, and make sure that we're all here and present and accounted for. So um, cool. I'll say that. Are you ready for the rapid fire questions? Okay. <laughs> Okay, um, so these are just basic five sentence stems where you just answer based on whatever comes to your head um, and we'll just get through them. Uh, so the first one is sexiness is. The first thing I thought of was just like being a fresh out of the shower. <laughs> nice, nice. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, the sexiest thing about blackness and or black people is. Everybody wants to be us, that we are the originators. And more specifically, I think of black trans women are essentially the fucking blueprint for everything. Talk about it. Talk about <laughs> it. Okay. Absolutely. Um, my go-to for feeling sexy is. I don't know, because I have not <laughs> even been like thinking about sexiness at all. You know, what popped in my head, um, <laughs> Because, again, I've been your fan for a long time. I'm watching you on Instagram once and what in your stories you were, like, twerking to the office thing. And I just thought, I was, I was like, yes. Yes, yes. I love it. Yeah, but probably, again, I, I really like when I'm in my most, like, natural state. And for me, that is typically, like, right after I get out of the shower. And I'm just, like, that's where I feel the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sexual freedom for Black folk is achieved when we unpack all of our isms and phobias and feel Amen. our feelings and feel our feelings. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Last uh, sentence stem. When I am done being on this podcast, I will. I'm going to go continue to watch uh, the Falcon and the winter soldier because I'm obsessed with Sebastian Stan. Okay. Okay. That the, I will say all the comic book stuff. I'm like, I study from afar. I know nothing about it, but I just I respect all the fans. Cause I'm like, <laughs> y'all really be knowing what y'all talking about. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> just tell me when the next black Panther coming out. That's all, <laughs> like shouts out to y'all. I love it. Yes. 
Raquel, tell the folks where they can. I'm, honestly, I'm guessing most of the people who are listening are probably also fans of you and they already know where to find you. But just in case there's that one person living under a rock in Australia, tell folks where they can find you, all the good stuff that you have. Um, this will be published in June. So anything you have coming up in May or June that you want to share, just talk your shit. Cool. So you can follow me on Instagram at Raquel Savage, R-A-Q-U-E-L Savage. And on Twitter, Raquel underscore Savage. You can follow my nonprofit, Zep Wellness, on Instagram and Twitter at Z-E-P-P Wellness. Tell uh, us, you- actually, before you move on, tell me more about that, because I don't think I, I knew about that. Yeah. So I started this nonprofit in 2019, 2020. Last year was the first full year of offering services. We're a nonprofit mental health organization, and we offer uh, services exclusively to Black, Indigenous people of color, sex workers, survivors, and queer and trans folks. So all of our services are also free. We offer free trauma therapy, free yoga, free trauma-informed energy work. We do a rent relief program for Black trans women sex workers. We pay their rent. We have an art class where we get to draw our genitals. There's really so much that we do, but um, it's a a mental health and kind of healing services thing. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and exclusively staffed by the people that we serve as well, right? So our entire staff and board are uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, sex workers, survivors, and queer and trans folks. Love it. Love it. Love it. And you can donate some money to Zep Wellness because we need your funds <laughs> more to offer funds. Um, I all this information will be in the show notes. So yes, please know. Bit.ly <laughs> slash Zep Wellness to give us some funds on the GoFundMe. Um, yes. And then, yeah, you can follow my production company, Kink Media Group, um, on uh, Instagram, kink, K-I-N-K, media group underscore, and on Twitter, kink media group. Um, on kink media group, I executive produce different projects for um, black and queer folks and sex workers. So we have five, five different shows. And then, I don't know, you can go to my Patreon if you want to get up close and personal with the, the educational and introspective work that I do, patreon.com slash Raquel Savage. And then if you if you one of the freaks who want to spend some money, OnlyFans.com. OnlyFans. <laughs> Give me some money. Bring your wallet. There it is. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Listen, all of it, all the things. Support this work. Listen, I am so thankful that you came and joined me today. I'm so thankful for this conversation. Um, I know it's amazing. Uh, I If y'all ain't excited or y'all ain't learned something, you need to go back and listen to it again because this conversation was incredible. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank y'all for listening. We will talk to you next time. And in the meantime, take care. Bye. You've been listening to TSOB with Dr. G, produced by Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert of Tembi and I. To keep up with all things TSOB, Follow us on social media at TSOB The Podcast, which you can find on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For past episodes of the show, visit TSOBpodcast.com or subscribe to the show either on YouTube or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, don't forget that you've got homework for this episode. To find the downloadable worksheet for this or any other episode of the show, head on over again to tsobpodcast.com where you'll find it and any other important information from the show notes. And finally, do you have any questions or thoughts to share? Sound off by email at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Again, this was TSOB, the sex ed of black folk. Thank you for listening. Talk again soon.